We have a very special edition of Pwn today. We're joined by Dwayne Williams, director of the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. For those listening to this, uh, you remember a couple months back, we recorded a live session at the New England Cyber Defense Competition, the NECCDC. And Northeastern ended up winning that competition and moved on to the Nationals. The Nationals is the NCCDC, the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition, whom Dwayne is the director of putting together this competition year over year. Dwayne is a super accomplished professional in the cybersecurity field, in the Cyber Hall of Fame spent time in the Air Force, degree in cyber. Dwayne, do you want to do you want to take a second to kind of introduce yourself for us? Yeah, good, good morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's quite an honor to be here. As you mentioned, I'm the director of the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. I work for the Center for Infrastructure Assurance and Security at the University of Texas at San Antonio, which has its own cybersecurity program. We're a little bit unique in that most of the people in our center are not academically aligned per se. They're not professors. Uh, they've come from an operational background. I myself, uh, obviously the Air Force background, I have a consulting background. And so we have a lot of individuals like that that brought that expertise from the field into this environment. And our focus is not necessarily academia. Our focus is specifically on states, communities, preparedness, and workforce development. That's really where that competition component comes into it. So one of the things that we did early on in the center's history was all these exercises with the uh, ISACs, which really were those and the Secret Service. And the biggest thing that came out of every single uh, event that we went to was we can't find enough people and we can't find enough people with the right set of skills. Colleges do a fantastic job of giving you a theoretical background in a lot of cases. Two-year schools are a little bit better at doing the hands-on in the four years, but uh, what we really saw was that demand for students that were prepped to walk into a job. Nobody wants to hire somebody and then spend 12 months training. I mean, the government mm-hmm. does that all the time, but for specialties, but what industry really needed and, and local governments really needed was people that could walk in day one and make a difference. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so it's certainly a need. I need that like, Jack and I talk about all the time, right? <laughs> right. So, Dwayne, when I look at the results of this year's competition, I see that the, the University of Central Florida won this year's competition. So, congrats Great. to the University of Central Florida. It's the second year that they've won. But more interestingly, South Dakota State came in second. Dakota State, yep. And third was Stanford. Correct. What's super interesting to me about that piece is it seems... To me, like we have like a wide geographical distribution of winners here, right? If someone asked me the question, say, hey, like there's no data points. If you had to make some assumptions, some guesses, where would you assume or guess that these winners would come from? And naturally I'd say like tech hubs, right? I say like, oh, they all come from Silicon Valley or maybe they all come from DC, but they seem to be like, they're really distributed, which is to me, that's good and impressive. I was curious what your what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that is true. Now UCF, this is their fifth national championship. They kind of have a dynasty going. Um, whenever you have a competition, you're going to have a game. There's going to be rules. There's going to be people that figure out tools and techniques and strategies that help them. But you are absolutely right. The way the competition is structured is it's nationwide. So we do have nine regions that cover the entire country, as well as, of course, Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico uh, is welcome to play. And so what we do with those is each region competes in qualifying events. 
that feeds up to a regional event that feeds up to the national championship. So we take the top team from each region, as well as the second place teams all compete in a wild card event. Mm -hmm. So there's one extra that comes from that wild card. But these uh, students that you'll see from across the country, the cool thing that we always see is how talented the students are, no matter where they came from. Yeah. Um, you'll have students that come from very small schools that do extremely well and are incredibly bright, very, very gifted. So it's not, uh, you know, we can handicap it a little bit every year, depending on the team that comes back. We know the players, we know their skills, but you certainly year to year, you get surprises that walk in from anywhere. So it truly is one of those situations where you don't get those teams just from specific locations in the country. They're from all over. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. The idea that like you guys have found a way to make this accessible to people. Right. Or to schools and, and institutions. Yeah, I'm just going to comment on that. A lot of that work came from the students themselves yeah. and the professors that are behind it. So behind each one of these teams is usually a faculty mentor, staff mentor, somebody from industry that helps them prep and go. Now, there are some teams that are almost completely self-taught, which is even more impressive uh, when you look at it. But there's there's a lot of work that goes into this. We have teams that will start their prep for next year this week or next week. You know, they just come off the season, they'll immediately roll into prep for next year. They'll still work through the summer because this competition tends to attract the students that look at this as a hobby mm -hmm. and a vocation. And so that's really, when you're looking for these people that are the next generation of professionals, that's who you find. These are the people that they've grown up on this, they live it, they breathe it, they wanna do it in their spare time, they wanna do it for their job. They're out there writing their own tool sets, they're out there writing their own checklists and capabilities. Uh, so it's really impressive to see the amount of effort that goes into it. It's very humbling for us to not only have that time and energy coming into it, but it also pushes us to get better. If you look at how the competition has evolved from the first year that we ran it till now, it's night and day. Mm -hmm. uh, I, could, I could take almost any team around the country now and put them up against the team that won in year one, you know, 17 years ago, and, and they probably beat them. Um, the teams now are just that much better. Yeah. And, and better dressed, right? We understand from the writings that came out of UCF <laughs> yeah. that they think that their unified wardrobe has been a really big part of their success. Uh, almost, uh, not all the teams, but quite a few of the teams will come to the nationals with a uniform, whether that's a team shirt or a nicer. Uh, we had, you know, Wyoming, for example, is one of my favorite schools. They all had these really cool plaid shirts with their names stitched on them and stuff. So you see that at the nationals. There are definitely teams like UCF that come to play and they'll dress professional. Uh, they treat it like a job. They come into it very, very seriously. Uh, and there are other teams that, that come into it and they're just much more relaxed, but they take it. You know, they're not dressed up for it, but they are absolutely on the ball when they're in the room and playing the game. Dwayne, I want to um, I, I want to hit on something you said that actually like pulled out a heartstring. <laughs> um, I've talked about this idea forever is saying people talk about certifications and they talk about creating their own labs. And we talk about kind of like tooling up a workforce. And I've really been a believer this whole time that in order to make it through and cyber and have a career and a long, long lasting career in cyber and continues to be meaningful and relevant in a like shifting industry and a shifting threat landscape is you as an aspiring professional have to be willing to do more than what maybe like an employer might require. Like you can't rely solely on your employer to like tool you up. 
Like there's got to be this inherent in like innate intellectual curiosity and passion that you talked about that forces you to like develop labs on your own time to like tune your skills, to practice your skills and all these things with it. And it's almost like that passion kind of becomes a tow truck, if you will, that like pulls you through challenging times within cyber. Because honestly, like if you're not passionate about it and you don't love to do it, like you're never going to make it because you'll get burned out pretty fast because just the velocity of the industry. Yes. And like what, what you just captured is saying like these students, these people participating in these events, it seems like they have that DNA, like that passion of saying like they're, they're doing this during the summer. Like, you know, especially here in like Vermont, you know, we get like five days a year of sunshine. And when we do, and you know, and it's like, it's like 80 degrees out. Like a lot of these folks are inside practicing, right? Because that's, that's what they love to do. So it's super nice to, to hear you say that. Yeah, no, and, and I agree with you. There's, there's no bare minimum. Uh, if you're in this field, you can't approach it with, well, I'll get enough information if I just do this. Yeah. The people that are, are really behind it and really want to become good at their job, never stop learning. Yeah. Period. Uh, and these students absolutely embrace it. They embody it. They'll come to me after the event and say, all right, we, you had this challenge and I approached it this way and it didn't quite work for me, but how, what else could I have done? You know, how else could I have solved this puzzle? What are other areas I could go look at and research and, and find out what I could have done better next time? How do I build that skill set? And it's, it's really exciting to see. We had one year, uh, this is actually happened a couple years ago when we were just started doing the virtual uh, I watched a student in a virtual session work with uh, Palo Alto, who's one of our supporters, work with one of their firewall techs. And it, it literally took them eight hours to get the firewall just exactly the way they wanted it. But the student never gave up. They learned the entire time. They were really enthusiastic about it. So every, you know, every time they hit a roadblock, it, it really didn't matter to them. Their goal was... I'm going to get better. I'm going to learn this and I'm going to keep pushing forward. And that's really obviously motivational for us. It's a lot of work to put these things on. But when you see the dedication from the students and their just sheer passion for it, you can't help but be motivated and inspired by it. I'd, I'd like to run with that story just for a second. It is super inspirational, right? Because you're saying like, yeah, like the first time is, is always the hardest. It always takes the most time. But the second time and the third time that that student goes through it, like they're going to be that much faster. They're going to be that much faster again. And they're going to be that much faster the next time. And that knowledge is something a certification could never teach you. Like it's something like you just can't pick up a manual and expect to be an expert by the time you get to the end. It's like, it's the act of doing. It's that process of being hands-on keyboard and practicing that I think is the difference. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Yeah, that, that hands-on component to it is is one of the things we see that have made competitions, not just ours, but competitions in general, very popular, uh, even to the point now where you see a lot of institutions and government entities use them now as recruiting mechanisms, industry uses them as recruiting mechanisms because they see the value in, in looking at somebody holistically. What are your skill sets? What's your resume look like? And can you actually do this stuff? Right. You know, if, I, if I put you in front of a keyboard and ask you to start typing, are you going to be able to deliver? Yeah. Pretty cool. It, it, if I could ask you a question, Dwayne, and I want to talk about sort of the initiation of the NCCDC, right? Because it didn't exist before, you know, you folks started talking about it back in 2004. And, and sort of the way I want to direct the question is in 2005, right, you initially had support from DHS and UTSA at the, at the Center for Infrastructure Assurance and Security, right? You guys are all backing it up. And 
you had some initial expectations, I'm sure, as did the organizations that supported the program. How do you think it's changed over the course of time? It's changed quite a bit. I mean, you referenced the, the early days of it. The, the history of it's kind of interesting. When the whole thing got started, was there were two gentlemen by the name of uh, Dan Ragsdale and Lance Hoffman, who are very, you know, if you know the security industry, you're going to recognize those names. They wrote a grant, uh, submitted it to NSF and said, we want to sponsor a workshop. And the goal of that workshop will be to see if we can build a national cyber defense exercise in the competition. What would it look like? And so that was held in San Antonio. Our center director, Dr. Greg White, went. He started you know, talking to people and pulling them aside. And, and unfortunately, what academics tend to do is they want to go form committees. And so there were people that were kind of peeling off and doing committees. And he said, mm, I don't want to do that. Um, so we grabbed five schools here in Texas and said, if we build something and could have a competition in 2005, would you be willing to come play? Would you help us build this? And they said, sure, absolutely. So he came back to campus and said, I volunteered us to go build this thing. Nobody knows what it's supposed to look like. Go take a shot at it. And so Kevin Archer, who's our tech director and myself, sat down. We kind of whiteboarded it. We came up with the first event. We ran it in 2005, which is the Texas schools. And then we had a couple of folks that came in. There were early regional directors. And they took it national the next year. So we ran the national championship. We had four regions in 05, uh, and it's grown from them. And, and one of the keys to success in this program, especially for us, are those regional directors. So we don't specifically run the regional events. We have regional partners mm-hmm. that take care of that for us. They organize the qualifiers. We all work together and we collaborate, obviously. But there's a lot of boots on the ground that happen at those regional and qualifying events that help feed this event. And so this is kind of neat. One of the things that you see the evolution of the program Program. Obviously, it's grown. It's gotten more difficult. It's technically more challenging than it ever was at the beginning. Um, but we have seen this really neat merger of uh, people from academia, government, and industry. They're all willing to work together towards a common goal, support each other, contribute ideas, uh, funding, just sheer manpower to make these things work. Uh, so it's very rare to, to find something like that where you can get all three of those groups to work together and everybody kind of pushing towards the same goal. So I think, you know, evolution of the competition, apart from getting more complex, is we are now in the, the generation where the students that competed five, 10 years ago are coming back now as volunteers, mentors, and sponsors because they understood the value of this event and what it could, you know, the changes it could make in people's lives. So that's been really cool to see as the evolution of the program. Yeah, it's pretty great. And and if you think about that's sort of like the goals that the folks came in with, right? But as you look at it overall, as somebody who both understands the industry really well and has been so intimately associated with the competitions, if you had a guess, like what do you think the most important outcomes, right, that have been created either from the regional or the national events as you've watched it progress since since 2004 or five? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, obviously you have the winners, which are, are important and unique, and it's made a lot of difference in those individuals. But I think one of the cool things I've seen out of it is the networks that have been built from it. So one of the things I always tell the students is, this is a very small community. It doesn't seem like it, but it is. So the best thing you can do, especially at the early days, is make connections. Meet people, shake hands, talk to them, start working with them, collaborate with them, get ideas, uh, and build that infrastructure to where 10 years from now, you may be looking for a job or you may be looking for a, a, a talented individual to come help you out. And if you build those networks out, it will make life easier for you uh, and so one of the biggest outcomes I've seen from that is a very large alumni base that has been built from this. And those individuals are absolutely willing to share their time, uh, their energy, their money even to support the next generation coming up and through because they understood that they you know, got to where they were from this experience and they want to support others going through the same thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Duane, um, over the past 10 years, you've kind of seen some patterns of success. Um, the University of Virginia's 
done very well. UCF, University of Central Florida has done very well. Do you see like a profile or pattern, like in terms of like the teams is like skills or attitudes that might like lend to their success? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's clearly a pattern that you can develop. If you look at the teams that have been successful, even going back to the first few years, the teams that are successful have a couple of key elements that are always the same. One, they have a very good organizational structure. They don't get disrupted by what's going on. They are good at time management. They understand the tasks that they need to do and when they need to do them. They have very talented and dedicated individuals. They'll have a good team captain uh, and they prep. They practice really hard before they get here. So it's oddly, you know, we originally created this competition to kind of mirror what it was like working in industry. And hopefully we've achieved that because we're seeing the same skill sets that come out of a successful team as what you would want in your team, no matter where it was. If you were running an IT shop or security shop somewhere else, you want those individuals that can work together, are part of a team, can support each other, don't get flustered, don't get mad at each other, can work through problems as a group and prioritize. So all of those things that we're seeing, those are very common amongst all the teams that are winners. Now, all the teams that might, if you make it to nationals, you've got those skill sets. What ends up differentiating you at the nationals quite often is a little bit of experience. Obviously, if you've been before, it's like one of the Super Bowl. It's a little easier for you. You're not you know, impressed by the lights and the, the national red team and that kind of stuff. You're, you're ready for it. You know what's up uh, and you know what's coming down the pipe. But those same skill sets there, it's usually the little things that'll make a difference. So you don't catch the red team and you kick them all the way out. You never let them come back in your systems. You get very good at bringing services back up. You get very good at managing your time and making sure you take care of the business tasks. So those are those little differentiators when you get to the nationals uh, that make that difference between first, second, third, and, and so on. Can we turn the lens back on Dwayne just for a second and ask yeah. you about your own sort of path here, right? Sure. I'd, I'd love to know sort of two things. First off, you know, how did you find yourself in a position to be leading the NCCDC, right? Because I think that's a super interesting, you know, place to start. But also looking forward, you know, this is getting really, really big. We'll talk a little bit later about sponsors and what have you, but it's a really big deal and a really important deal. And I'm curious to know what you think your role is as this thing continues to grow and move forward. Thanks. Um, so as far as how we, we got it started, it was literally that meeting that Dr. White went to and he came back and said, I volunteered us to do this. I need you to build this. And I honestly, I wasn't a fan of the task at first because I had no idea what this would even look like. Um, most of the competitions that were alive at the time were CTFs, which are great, but they're a totally different animal. There wasn't really anything like this. And there still really isn't anything quite like CCDC. Uh, and it was done that way on purpose. But we had to figure out how is this going to happen? How are we going to build this? What are we going to make it look like? So that's how we got started. We literally got thrown the task. It was kind of a, you're going to do this and I volunteered us for it. So you're going to make this happen. And then we did. And after we did the first one, I kind of saw the light and thought, okay, I understand now why we're doing this. This makes sense. I see the value in it. I see the difference it can make. I see how it helps the students prep. And so then we all just kind of jumped in and, and started working on it over the years. Where I see it going in the future, one of the things that we are actually talking to our presenting sponsor, Raytheon Intelligence and Space with, is expanding into the international scene. So we've always kind of poked on it a little bit. Um, there's still some work here we can do in the U.S. in terms of bringing more schools into the program. And we have other competitions uh, like our Hivestorm event, which is just a find and fix sort of event. Uh, we're also involved with the Cyber Patriot program. We're the technical providers uh, for AFA on that. We helped found that competition as well. Uh, so we've, we've got definite foothold in this space and have for a long time. But that's kind of the next evolution for CCDC is how do we take this into the international market? And is there a way to let the international schools compete with the U.S. schools? 
uh, either in a world championship scenario or you know, something along those lines. We don't have it all figured out, but like I said, Raytheon has got some good hooks into the schools there in the UK. We've taught some classes there. We've done some events there. So that's kind of the next direction for it is the evolution of it. The other thing we have to do to keep the competition fresh is constantly evolve how it works. We were able to take it virtual during COVID. So we, you know, everybody went home. We figured out mechanisms to let the students compete from home. Uh, so teams were competing in separate locations. It did actually hurt our attendance a little bit because teams couldn't prepare as well. So we had a lot of teams drop off and say, I, I don't want to compete because I don't feel like I can get my team ready. Uh, but there were about 170 teams this year, for example, that came back and said, no, I think we're good. Uh, I think that number will go back up as we continue to bring the students in. But we've got to evolve and bring in new technologies. If you look at what the goal of the competition is, is to mirror what life is like in a small business. So we have to start to mirror that as the small business evolves. You have the complete and total breakdown of the traditional security perimeter now. It doesn't exist the way it did you know, 20, 30 years ago. You don't have a defined company perimeter with a firewall and you might have a modem that comes in and that sort of thing. Now you've got all these employees working from home. Some of them are on their own devices. Some of you are connected to Wi-Fi at the home device. And so as a security professional, you've got to worry about that, the cloud elements, all these other different avenues for attack that you have to adapt to and evolve to. And we have to do that with the competition is bring that same flavor into the students to get them used to that concept because that's what they'll see when they leave school. That's awesome. I love that idea of the, the international push. It's yet. We'll see. Yeah. Where there's a will, there's a way, Dwayne. Yeah. If we can, we can roll back a little bit further, if you're willing. If I understand this correctly, you started as a psychology major. That, that is correct. Yeah. But you ended up with a degree in computer science and then ended up in the Air Force. Yep. What happened along there? Like, how'd you come into cyber? How'd you get interested in it? And then lastly, like kind of tracing all the way through, like you've kind of kind of reached the the pinnacle of like cybersecurity, like running teams in the Air Force. Like, what, what was it like to lead teams there? It was phenomenal. So going back there, obviously, uh, you read a little bit of my history. I started off at Baylor University as a psychology major. That was my idea. I was like, this is great. I love talking to people. I love helping people. Maybe this is something I could do. I, I took two psychology classes and kind of came to the realization that this is not really for me. I was going to minor in computer science because there were some interesting projects that you could do with research and brain chemistry, and they were doing some work by merging the two. Uh, and I thought, eh, I'm not really interested in psychology anymore. Let me focus on this computer science thing. Yeah. Uh, my sophomore year, I joined the uh, Air Force ROTC there on the campus and um, ended up getting commissioned. You know, obviously, when I graduated, I went into the Air Force as a programmer. So I spent my first part of the career actually at Randolph Air Force Base here in San Antonio, was a programmer, got picked to go to uh, Shaw Air Force Base in a new computer security construct that they were creating there called the 609th Information Warfare Squadron. And there I was actually initially brought in as a, a DBA. So I was working with their databases, pulling the attack data in. And, and as we kind of got into it, I shifted over to countermeasures engineering, which is basically I see patterns, I see the bad guys, I have to develop something to defeat them. And it was just that cat and mouse challenge that really, really hooked me at the time. And working with the individuals that we had there, they were superb. They were absolutely cream of the crop, you know, absolute. Everybody was kind of handpicked to come to this unit. Uh, and they were so talented and so motivated that it was kind of, you couldn't help but push yourself further, faster, harder to do better because you knew also the mission that you did was important. Mm -hmm. What you were doing was critical as part of the you know, defense of the nation. You were securing very critical systems. If you, when we first started that, you go to a military commander and especially in the Air Force, it was like, well, is it flying and does it drop bombs? That's what I care about. 
And now if you go to military commander, they absolutely will rate that cyber component as highly as those others now, because they understand what it means to their infrastructure and that cyber capability is just as important as the physical capability now. It wasn't then, but it is now. But that's really what hooked me was that cat and mouse, you know, I see a bad guy, how do I stop them? How do I find them next time? How do I find somebody like them? So that was just the sheer excitement of that challenge really, really hooked me into cyber. Nice, nice. And for other people who may be uh, majoring in psychology or something else that they're not finding <laughs> to be particularly sure. rewarding today as they listen to the podcast, you know, what's your recommendation for them? Maybe they feel like they're arriving late at the party because we all know we're all exposed to folks who've been programming since they were in their early teens. They sure. wrote their first honeypot at 14 as a high school right. project. And sometimes really smart people come into this industry a little bit later, right? They decide, as you did, Absolutely. that they want to come on. What, what would you recommend for them, right? So that they would get exposed to that same level of excitement that, that brought you to us, you know, over the course of the years. Right. I would say take a really hard look at what you're doing. If you don't love it, go look for something else. Um, And that's kind of one of those, you know, they always have that if you enjoy what you're doing, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's kind of true. But it's especially the the cool thing about the cyber field is it's it's growing still. It's like zero unemployment. We have negative for that. There's so many positions that are open. Um, It is a little difficult to get into it if you don't have some background. But there are a lot of really good free resources that are out there right now. Uh, You can do a couple of Google searches. You can find free classes that will give you the intros, give you the basic building blocks. You can start off with a lower level security analyst type position, learn as you go. And that's really the key is being willing to dig into it and learn as you go. But if you play with it a little bit and it, and it doesn't really kick your interest, it may not be for you. But if you play with it a little bit, don't be afraid to switch at any point in your life. And we've had students come through uh, the CCDC that were biology majors and they switched, that were business majors and they switched. And we've had people that were coming through on their second or even third careers And it's never too late. If you really want to go into something, just have that drive and the passion to go learn about it and pull those free resources because there are a lot of them now. There are even full university courses that have been thrown up online for free. uh, And you can start working with those and and just learn. YouTube, as much junk is out there, there's still some good resources and people that are willing to put their, their knowledge online to help others. And that's been a really cool thing about it. You don't have to program for 30 years. You don't have to be the whiz kid that sat down at two and wrote their first program. That's that's not really relevant. What really I've seen, the people that are truly, truly interested in it and have that passion are the ones that are successful. Running with that for a second, when you look at student interests and sponsor interests in cybersecurity, do you see them expressing interest in like the challenges of protection or unidentifying gaps or the techniques or exploitation or kind of combination of, of all of that. And, it's, you know, it's curious if you could comment on that. Sure. I mean, from the student perspective, there's a lot of interest in penetration testing, reverse engineering, malware analysis. Uh, and it's kind of the, the sexy part of the industry is, you know, oh, that's really cool. And, and I've done that. Um, I did penetration testing as a commercial security consultant for a while. And that is fun. Uh, I'm not going to lie. The first time you pull a file that has like a million credit card numbers in it, it's a rush. Like, it's really cool. But uh, the students, you absolutely, they'll have an interest in it, but you will get that group that is more interested in the, how do I lock this down? Because the challenge of being right every time to them is more motivational than being right once. So if you're on offense, you only got to be right once. It just takes one hole for me to break in, one account, you know, whatever. If I'm on defense, I got to be right all the time. And that is a really high bar to achieve. And that in and of itself motivates some of those students. 
Now on the um, the sponsor side, you mentioned that we, we have a lot of really great sponsors. You know, you got Amazon, Walmart, I mentioned Raytheon, um, and I won't name them all because there are a lot of them and they're fantastic in their support. And the great thing I've seen from them is they are absolutely interested in students that can do the gamut. They're, they're looking for students with defensive skills. They're looking for students that can do malware analysis. They're looking for students that can examine their systems. Uh, you've got the consultants that are looking for students that can help them assess other companies. And so it does truly run the gamut. And you see that in both the student side as well as the sponsor side. And the sponsors are looking for the right individual to augment their teams. And quite often they found that, yep, I can find those students at these events because like we said initially, they're motivated, they're interested in it, and they're not in it for a paycheck per se. Everybody wants to get paid, but it's something they're really excited to do. They want to come in every day and they want to do these kind of things and push the envelope and see what they can learn and what they can do and what a difference they can make in, in an organization. Nice. And in terms of making a difference, there's a lot of things that you've worked on that are beyond the NCCDC. And I know that's sort of the topic of the podcast, but just for a second, I'd love to get your thoughts on the work you've done in some of these other places, things like Hivestorm that you mentioned earlier, things like the Cyber Patriot Program, which seems to be targeted a little bit earlier in life for some of these folks. You know, Tell me a little bit more about you know your work on that, how you get jazzed up about getting that going on and sort of how you balance the goals of those different objectives along with the NCCDC as an overall portfolio of Dwayne Williams' contributions to the future of cybersecurity. Right. Um, and, and that's kind of been my focus for at least maybe the last 15 years is what can I do to help that next generation? Um, it's been exciting. It's fun. It's motivational. The Cyber Patriot, like I mentioned originally, that is an Air Force Association program. We at the CIS try to pilot with high school students and it went pretty well, but it was a this same year that we were doing CCDC and we're a small shop. So I went to our center director and said, hey, Dr. White, I can't do both. I don't have enough people, we don't have enough money. I'm gonna focus on college, it makes sense, we're a college. We had some folks from AFA that were there and they said, hey, if you help us, we'd like to take this middle high school piece off and do our own thing. And we're like, yeah, that's great. And so we met with them. Dr. Wright wrote the concept of operations for Cyber Patriot. We helped them design the initial construct of what the competition would look like and the rules and all that kind of good stuff. And that launched with eight teams. And I think this last season they had 5,600 teams, something like that. They're getting close to 6,000. Uh, so you've got 25 to 30,000 kids that go through that program every year, and it's middle through high school. And one of the ways they've been able to do it is the technology that Dr. Keith Harrison, who's our lead developer, built. And it's you know that concept of you push the processing down to the local entity, you have scoring agents and servers that pull the results in, and so you're able to scale it up to thousands and thousands of teams across not only the country, but, but the world. And so that has been a really neat thing to be involved in, is when you start to see fifth and sixth graders talking about Cyber Patriot. I was going through the airport one time and uh, we had these Mac Pros, you've seen those round cylinder ones kind of five, six years ago. And TSA agent pops it up and looks at it and says, what's this, you know, this is weird. And so I started to explain they were for a competition and a TSA agent said, oh yeah, my daughter is involved in this thing called Cyber Patriot. And it's one of those moments where you go, oh, that was cool. Like I'm involved in that and and your daughter's involved in that and she loves it. and. And you, you see those little clicks and that's kind of what makes your day and makes it all, you know, the frustrations worthwhile is you see that click made and you see the impact you've had on somebody's life that you've never met, uh, may never meet, but you know, at some point you either gave them an experience that they'll remember or maybe push them in a certain direction for a career field. So that's really cool. That's been one of my, I think my greatest accomplishment is that ability or the gift of being able to to go, you know, it's been a gift to me to be able to, to motivate those students and be involved in something that may push them in one direction or another. 
uh, and, and give them, you know, potentially a career for life, something they're really interested in. So that's been great. Now, not all those students are going to end up in the cyber field. Some of them will peel off and do other stuff, but that's been a really cool thing for me. And frankly, if she becomes a CEO who actually cares a lot about cybersecurity, yeah. God bless all of us, right? I mean, exactly, <laughs> spreading yeah. the good word. Let me just push a little bit because I think you just described a great reason why someone like you or Holly or me or Justin, whatever, we feel great about it. But you've also had pretty remarkable success in your sponsorship, right, of the events and the programs you have, whether we talk about the work you've done with Raytheon, you mentioned a little bit earlier, or Northrop Grumman and the work that goes on with Cyber Patriot. Where do you think these folks' heads are at, right? Because clearly some of it's what you mentioned. They want access to the candidates. But do you think there's, do you think there's something more going on for them there? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there, and I mentioned this earlier, we've got some entities that have come to us now, um, like Abbott. So Abbott's a healthcare company. You wouldn't necessarily think of them as of cyber, but they have a huge cyber component. They have, uh, you know, they're developing glucose monitors. They talk to your phone. They talk to your doctor. And one of the individuals that came through from Abbott was a former competitor, uh, Mr. Roberts. So he was a UCF student, played for a number of years, won a couple of championships, went to his company and said, this is a great place to be involved, not just for talent, but it's something that we should support. And that's one of the gifts that we've been given by our sponsors is they're, they're not just looking for an immediate ROI. And that's part of it is getting access to the talent, but they're also willing to support it in terms of their personal time. Uh, their volunteers that come in and help us run things like the orange team, which is simulated users, of course, red team spots, um, white team volunteers that sit in the room and help us judge things. So the sponsors are, are absolutely not just looking for, you know, I need five people. And that's obviously a part of their, their mission is to get talent and bring them in. But they have shown us that they are willing to support the event, make connections for us, bring more volunteers in, bring more schools in, bring more students to us. And so that's been really cool to see is a lot of the sponsors are just, they're not in it just for the short term. They're in it because they recognize that it's doing something above and beyond uh, just helping them fill out their talent pipeline. Yeah, that's excellent. Dwayne, if we could, uh, kind of roll forward a little bit, kind of do a, do a forward look here. Our world is changing <laughs> pretty quickly here. Right. Especially now, recently, we're, we're seeing, you know, war in Eastern Europe. Someone with your background, your expertise, your extensive expertise, I was curious how you feel about the use of cyber tactics in military conflicts. And specifically, what I'd like to get at is, um, do you have any predictions on the role of cyber offense and defense in, in future conflicts? Yeah, I mean, it, it will only continue to expand. I mean, we've seen it, it's already been used. It's been used for different things. I think cyber has long now been recognized, at least for the last decade or so, as an asymmetrical warfare mechanism. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to have 100,000 troops to go against your 100,000 troops. I might have a team of 10 really talented individuals that get in and disrupt your supply line on the backside. So I can have a huge impact on the force capability of my opponent if I know where to where the soft targets are. Can I affect their infrastructure at home and destroy their morale and their will to fight? Can I disrupt their supply chain? Can I disrupt their communications mechanisms? You know, so those all those other things you can disrupt and affect a fighting force without ever firing a bullet, without ever dropping a bomb. Uh, and we've seen that capability being exercised. I think it's going to continue to accelerate. The concern that I have and, and a lot of people obviously in the industry share is how do you differentiate between a civilian and a military target? So if you're going into and looking at something and let's say you have a military base the electrical grid that serves that base serves the surrounding community. So how do you target those systems without affecting the civilians as well? And that collateral damage 
argument is something that's you know being hashed over constantly amongst the folks at the Pentagon and obviously other military forces. And there's some folks that don't care. I mean, a terrorist will come in and they'll just wipe out everything they can touch. But that's the other side of this to look at is because we are all so increasingly interconnected now, uh, the threat level and the risk go up continuously from bad actors. You know, there's somebody out there with a laptop that may find a hole that may do something, uh, and whether it's on purpose or inadvertently, um, that capability is going to be there and we're going to see it more and more and more. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, this topic. You know, I've said for a while that cyber attacks are faster than deploying an army and they're faster than any missile that could be launched today. And it was kind of interesting about one of the things that you just said was um, you started by saying, you know, disruption of supply chain. And then can you talk about how do you distinguish between a military target versus a civilian target? And what is that demarcation? But, right. you know, when I kind of look at like our military or, or other militaries across the globe, like part of that supply chain does come from home, right? And it does come with like a civilian workforce in order to enable that supply chain. So that's a super interesting demarcation point, right? That's like, to me, is blurry how you would distinguish. Yes. Yeah. And also think about it as the impact zone, right? There are people who do modeling for traditional ordinance of how much damage it does over what period and for what duration, right? We talk about the different effects of different styles of weaponry. I think one of the difficulties for us in our industry in general, and now if we talk about this as a tactic for modern warfare, as you express it, Justin, as well, is it's hard to know when the cyber dominoes stop falling, right? A simple attack that can move around. I remember when uh, NotPetya came out in, I think it was like 17 or, or whenever the hell it was, or 11, and it pops out and it was everywhere. It was, it was not just on Ukrainian sites that were doing, you know, accounting. It was everywhere because it had been written in a way that made it accidentally splash all over the place. So I think it, it's definitely going to grow. As we think about it, Dwayne, you know, how does one limit its exposure? How, do, how does one limit where it goes, because it could just as easily bounce back given the nature of multinational interconnectivity. You know, one could think of a weapon being deployed in our best interest coming back to truly sting us because of the pervasive internetworking we see everywhere. Yeah, or your allies or entities are not even involved in it. So yeah, it's really interesting. There are think tanks in DC that have been pondering this issue for the last two decades. And I, I've yet to see a definitive answer to how do you approach cyber as a component of warfare? What do you do with it? What are you allowed to do? How far can you go? How do you limit collateral damage and stuff? So it is kind of a, not necessarily a frightening thing, but it's certainly something that we absolutely need to keep an eye on and work towards. And obviously if you are secure, then your risk from those are a lot lower. And so that's one of the approaches I always try to teach into people is don't be necessarily scared of these things. Be prepared, lock your stuff down, use two-factor authentication, secure your things, don't fall for phishing attacks. So educate yourself, educate those around you, uh, especially in your family members. I know most of you, if you're in the IT world, you're the IT support for your extended family. And you get those phone calls, help them out. Like teach those people around you to be secure, teach them to protect themselves and to secure their assets. And, and every little bit you can do makes every, you know, that whole infrastructure more secure. Yeah. That's great. Dwayne, I'm super appreciative of your time. And I want to kind of start to kind of take us home a little bit here. As we kind of start to wrap some of this up, I want to ask you, if you were to give a recommendation to the teams that are looking to compete in next year's competition and dominate next year's competition, be victorious, what recommendations would you have for them? Sure. So we, we actually do have kind of a set spiel that I've given to teams and the teams that are doing well or have listened. Uh, you know, the number one thing is learn to work together as a team. Absolutely, 100%. Learn to work together as a team. 
understand each other's strengths and weaknesses and be there for each other, back each other up. And we've seen that the teams that compete very well, they're all friends. They work well together, just like a good corporate environment or government environment, academic, they're friends. They work well together. So that's number one. Number two is learn the basics of everything. You don't need to be a super duper expert in a specific technology, but learn the basics. I know how networks work. I know how firewalls work. I know the concepts behind all of these. And now I just need to learn the command set for the technology that you dropped in front of me. But I know all the concepts behind it and I'm able to do that. Time management is huge. Learn how to manage your time. Don't get distracted by things that you can't control or can't control right now. Don't get flustered by any of that. Learn to manage your time well. And then the last component for it, which is far more technical than the others, is learn how to watch your network traffic and specifically to do egress filtering. So a lot of companies are doing that now, but they weren't necessarily a while ago. A lot of the teams are starting to do that now. But uh, if you can't stop somebody coming in necessarily or uh, you think you stopped them from coming in, you got to watch and make sure traffic's not coming out. So data exfiltration is huge. Covert channels that pop out and come back out of your infrastructure. If you really want to win and dominate CTDC, you have to learn how to do that. The red team that we have is very talented. We've got some individuals on there that are, they, you know, they have their own tool sets, uh, they've built their own companies, they are engineers, they are developers and the tools that everybody else in the industry uses. Uh, and so they're probably going to get in. What you have to understand is if there is a threat inside, how do I track them down and how do I spot them and how to prevent them from taking data out of my infrastructure? So those are kind of the key aspects to the teams that do do really well. They're doing those things really well now. Awesome. Dwayne, last question. We have a large listenership of folks that uh, subscribe to Pwned. We have a pretty far reach at this point. I'd say uh, international to a large degree. What can we be doing or what can the community be doing to better support you and your mission at you know Texas San Antonio in CIAS and the NCCDC? Like if someone wants to help, how do they engage? Right. So the easiest thing to do is get involved at a local level. Find a school, especially if you have expertise and you have the time, find a school that's looking for mentors and go in and teach something to these students. They're eager to learn. They want to learn. They just need a little bit of push in the right direction and some advice. So becoming a mentor to a local high school team or middle school team or a college uh, and share your knowledge is the number one way people can get involved. That supports our mission uh, in terms of developing the workforce and protecting the nation. Uh, and it also absolutely helps to develop those students because there's there's nothing quite like a industry professional that's willing to come to a middle school class, for example, and help them prepare for Cyber Patriot or an industry professional that'll come into a college and prepare a team for the Cyber Patriot events and, and talk them through different jobs in the industry with different capabilities. And I mentioned building that network. That's kind of the first tier for a lot of those students is, hey, I know somebody that works in the industry now. And I can ask them questions and get advice uh, and get feedback on what I may or may not want to do with my, my job and my career uh, moving forward. So one of the things I found through the last 18 years of this program is that's the number one thing that we could look for. If you're a cybersecurity professional or an IT professional, find the time to go volunteer and mentor somebody. Uh, reach out to your local schools. You do have some you know, hoops you got to jump through in terms of background checks and stuff, but Obviously, you know, most people in the IT field are going to be fine with that, but do that step. Reach out, be the mentor. Yeah, that's awesome. I come back to that one gal that you're able to influence at the, or like her family at the airport, the story that you told. And it's, um, I've kind of always viewed mentorship as um, 
way of, you know, participating. But I kind of asked the question and saying, like, if you change the path and the trajectory of one person and their life is better because you took a couple extra minutes out of your day, was it worth it? Yeah. I, yeah. I think the answer is absolutely yes. Yeah. Immeasurably. Yeah. And you never know what positive impact you're going to have on somebody. And, and that's, you know, been the blessing for me and my, my group of people that I work with and, and all the volunteers that come through it too, is, is that ability to get back into the community uh, into that next generation. It's really unique. Uh, it's, it's absolutely one of the best feelings in the world. Yeah. That's awesome. Jack, anything before we wrap up here? Oh, this has been really quite excellent for me. It's, it's wonderful to see the depth of experience because Dwayne gets to talk to us both as a cybersecurity professional who's doing a ton of work in this space, yeah. but also somebody who's finding a way to influence like hundreds and hundreds of people who are hopefully going to help us make this an easier job going forward. So I'm super grateful for the time. Congratulations on the popularity of the event. Justin and I had a blast at the regional. And I know yeah. how excited that team was to make it to the national. So I give you yeah. a lot of credit for getting that level of enthusiasm into these folks and for all the great work you're doing. And, and I hope we get a chance to talk again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And, and thanks for having me on and bringing some uh, some light to this. It's, it's something obviously I've been working on for a long time. It's clearly a passion project for a lot of people. And uh, we're very lucky to have so many wonderful people like you went to the the Northeast. I mean, they're great folks, they're great folks all around the country that are supporting this. So I'm, I'm lucky to be able to speak on their behalf, but uh, thanks for doing it. And thanks for bringing exposure to the program. Yeah. Excellent. Dwayne, I would, I, I would echo all of, uh, all of Jack's sentiments as well. If someone wants to get in touch with you, are you okay? If, how should, how, how should they contact you or should we put your contact in the show notes or? Sure. Uh, you can put it in the show notes. You can put my email address on there. I'm glad to have people reach out to me that way. Phone's not necessarily great. I'm always in the lab or you know, on the road or doing something else. But email is usually the best way to get a hold of me. Brilliant. Okay. Hey, listeners, want to get in touch with Dwayne? Uh, emails his preferred mechanism. Yes, please. The other listeners, if you need cybersecurity help or uh, got topics you want us to cover in the show, it's pwned at newharborsecurity.com. And we'll catch you next time. Great. Thank you very much.